as I continue to hear from folks in our church, uh, one of the things that I'm hearing the most is just how people are really missing uh, getting together in person in the same building for corporate worship each Sunday. And I share that sentiment. And I think God is doing many things through COVID-19, but I hope that one of the things that he's doing is, um, is just putting in us an increased sense of longing for church life, for fellowship, uh, for the public gathering of the saints for worship. Uh, as each week passes uh, in this strange time that we're in, we, uh, I hope, are increasingly recognizing um, how much these online gatherings, as helpful as they can be, really falls short of how God designed the church to be. And God is, I think, showing many of us how we've taken the church for granted, how we've taken our brothers and sisters for granted, how we've taken corporate worship and prayer for granted and fellowship for granted. And I'm hopeful that through all of this, any remaining vestiges of independent Lone Ranger Christianity that we might have uh, would be driven from our hearts through this as we increasingly realize that the body of Christ, the local body of Christ, the local church is not an option. It's something that we need. Now, in the meantime, uh, we will use the graces that God has given us to help us in the interim. Uh, we'll do virtual meetings like this, virtual Bible studies, uh, virtual times of singing. We should be very grateful that we're able to do things like this. And I know for a fact that God is using these means to bless us and encourage us and strengthen our church. No question about it. But how exciting it will be when we can, God willing, get back to really doing these things together for real as one body, as one family. In the meantime, please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter four. And I've got a, mine's right over here across my desk over here. Let me, let me just grab it, excuse me. All right, I'm back. Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Ephesians called Identity Matters. Ephesians 4. <clears throat> so the other day, um, I was about to go out and run some errands. And before I walked out the door, my wife took one look at me and said, you aren't going out in that, are you? Well, you husbands out there know that there are many tough questions that your wife can ask you that are very hard to respond to. But one of the things that I've learned after 22 years of marriage is how to answer that question. So if you're about to be married or newly married, you can just regard this as a helpful little bonus tip for this sermon. Uh, whenever my wife asked, you are going out in that, are you? My answer is, I'm not now. And I turn right back around and I go back to my closet. That really helps to diffuse a lot of situations. I am not good at picking out clothes. Never have been. Uh, whenever I look halfway decent, all the credit goes to my wife. And evidently that day, whatever I was wearing, while maybe appropriate for puttering around the home and doing domestic chores, was not appropriate attire for me to wear if I was going to be seen by other humanoids. And, and so I promptly changed. You know, the type of clothing that you wear is going to be dependent on what you're doing. It's going to be dependent on the occasion. And as we continue our sermon series through Ephesians, Identity Matters, 
the author of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, provides us with a clothing metaphor in his description of the Christian life. And he uses phrases like uh, putting on and putting off, like you're exchanging an old set of clothes that's no longer appropriate for the occasion for something that is very different and brand new. Now, in verses 17 through 24, Paul's been describing the old clothes that characterize unbelievers. He says, you must no longer walk as the pagan Gentiles do. The Gentiles had lives that were completely oriented away from God, a life that revolved around self and was totally dominated by sinful, immoral rebellion against God. And the scriptures teach us that the believer is to be something totally different. And this is very important. Because some of you, so because some folks think becoming a Christian is merely getting a free ticket out of hell, or or maybe it's just uh, making a few life adjustments, a few tweaks on some things that you don't like in your life. Christianity is not about little tweaks and little adjustments. It actually is about the total demolition of what you once were, and 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 being remade reconstructed into an entirely new person with an entirely new identity that is bound up in God who is now at the center of your life. Paul describes it in verse 22 as putting off the old self or the old man. He says, uh, he says you have been taught to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in a true righteousness and holiness. So in short, the new self is to look like God. Uh, it's, if, you, if, you, if you just want to get out of hell, but you don't want to look like God, Christianity is not for you. Uh, to image God, to look like God, that's the goal. That's the lifelong journey. That's the grand ambition of the Christian. It's not an easy journey. It's really a fight. It's, it's really warfare. Because there are still some elements of the old self in our hearts, indwelling sin that tempts us and pulls us back to that old way of life. As a matter of fact, we just, we just sung about that, didn't we? Uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Uh, the, that, that sin in us has not yet been fully eradicated. And part of the eradication process consists of the believer daily striving to live in accordance with his new identity as a child of God. And so, and so you are to be daily putting off the old, dirty, uh, grubby, inappropriate clothes of your past life, and you are to dress differently. You are to put on the new, clean, beautiful clothes that are appropriate for the occasion the occasion of being God's child who is being recreated after his image and likeness. Last time, we focused on Ephesians 4.25. It was a couple of weeks ago uh, where Paul challenged us to take off the old rags of falsehood, of lying and deceit, and put on the beautiful garments of truth and integrity. And now Paul takes us to a different part of the closet, if you will, to show us some more parts of the divine wardrobe, clothing that is absolutely essential if you're going to reflect something of the character of God in your new life as a child of God. And what we're about to read contains, I think, what for some of you will be one of the most shocking and surprising commands in the Bible. So let's take a look at God's word now. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, and... 
we are starting at verse 26. We'll read uh, just the just two verses here, verse 26 and 27. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help me to accurately preach the word of God. Help me to be faithful to the text in interpreting it and explaining it in applying the text. Father, I pray for those who are tuned in this morning, eager not to hear from Deemer Webb, eager to hear a word from the Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to them powerfully through your holy and inspired word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, uh, before we get started, let me, uh, there's one thing I have to do. I've got this uh, automatic heater underneath my desk, and it keeps kicking in, and it keeps distracting me. So I'm just going to go down here and turn that off. Okay, now we're back. All right, so in those two verses that we just read, Paul gives us four commands that have to do with anger. And the first thing that Paul tells us to do, and here's the shocking part, he tells us to be angry. And uh, that's my first point this morning, is that the Christian is to put on righteous anger. The Christian is to put on righteous anger. And that right there is going to be uncomfortable for some of you. But it's right there in the text. It's an imperative. Be angry, Paul says. And this surprises some people because some of us have grown up in situations where uh, we, we were taught we're just taught that anger is something that is inherently wrong, that good Christians just don't get angry. That's sin. That's bad. Anger is evil. But anger isn't necessarily evil. Um, uh, it can't be necessarily evil because God himself gets angry. Think about Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God's response to evil is never indifference. It's always anger, even hatred. Proverbs 6.16 says, there are, are, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And what's on the list of the things that God hates? Sins, pride and lying and murder and evil schemes. Indeed, even right here in the book of Ephesians, we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 6, that immediately after Paul lists various manifestations of sin, everything from sexual immorality to crude joking to covetousness, immediately after that, Paul says, on account of these things, the wrath of God comes. The anger of God is going to be poured out because of these things, because God is a God of justice. Now, some might say, well, well, well that's a God the Father. I, I can see him being angry, but what about God the Son? What about Jesus? God is the hard, tough one, and Jesus is, is soft and easygoing, right? He, he doesn't get angry. That, that's the caricature that, that, that many people have of Jesus. But once in the scriptures, when Jesus' opponents were searching for a way to trap him and accuse him, we're told in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. In John chapter 2, where Jesus sees people using God's holy temple as a means of financial gain. He is offended by that, 
And do you remember what happened? He cleansed the temple and not with a mop and a bucket, but with a whip. He went into the temple in anger and drove out the money changers and the animals. And he poured the coins out of their coffers and he's just, he's overturning tables. And Jesus in that moment is furious. He's not smiling and easygoing. And why is he that way? Because God has been profane and belittled and reduced to a money-making scheme. It's wrong. It's not just. It, it mocks God and it hurts others. In fact, that's always what evil does. It insults God, challenging his good rule and authority, and it wounds people who are precious beings made in God's beautiful image. And that's why it makes God angry. And God made us in his image. And so he has given us a capacity for anger. It's good to be like him. It's good to be angry at evil. It's good to be angry at anything that violates the kingdom of God. Be angry, Paul says. Have a righteous anger against evil and injustice. This is part of the divine wardrobe. It's part of the new clothing of the Christian. Uh, to not be concerned by evil is the old Gentile way described in verse 19, where Paul describes the unbeliever as callous or beyond feeling, giving themselves over to the practice of every kind of impurity. In other words, the kinds of feelings that uh, he should have about evil, he doesn't. The things that should stir up his heart in righteous anger don't. And one of the most striking things, uh, one of the most striking signs of a culture that has sunk to low levels of depravity and evil is an inability to be stirred into righteous anger over evil. And the church needs Paul's exhortation to have righteous anger because we ourselves can fall into a complacency and make peace with sin and become not angry with it, but comfortable with it. Are you increasingly desensitized to sin? Do you find humor in things that violate God's laws? Do you flirt with sin in your own life, not seeing it as, as that big of a deal? A sign of our absorption into the culture is a lack of anger over such things. John Stott says that there's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the fact of blatant evil, he says, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. So, so we should be angry when we look at the world around us and we see God mocked. Or when we hear about global sex trafficking and kids being kidnapped and abused. Or we, when we consider that, that America has the blood of millions of babies on its hands through abortion. We, we should be angry when the government regards abortion clinics as essential services that should stay open during a pandemic. That's not right. That's not just. Proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and spiritual health, while a lack of righteous anger is a red flag that something has gone wrong in our hearts because righteous anger is a manifestation of our love for God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Loving the Lord and hating evil are part of the same equation. What's more, righteous anger is a manifestation and evidence of our love, not just for God, 
but for our fellow man. Listen to this from B.B. Warfield. This is great and very insightful. He says that a man who cannot be angry cannot be merciful. The person who cannot be angry at things that thwart God's purposes and God's love towards people is living too far away from his fellow men ever to feel anything positive towards them. That's why the prophet Amos writes in Amos 5.15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. You see, there can't be justice in the land without anger. Uh, without a hatred towards evil. Likewise, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Again, there's a connection there. Part of loving others means hating evil. And of course, the thing that should arouse our anger the most, that should stir up the greatest sense of indignation, is not the sin of others out there, but the sin that's right here. In our own hearts. In fact, John Calvin in his Ephesians commentary makes this the primary application of Paul's command to be angry. Calvin writes that we comply with Paul's injunction if the objects of our anger are sought not in others but in ourselves, if we pour out our indignation against our own faults. That's a good word. Now, Calvin goes on to, to, to write after that, that, that yes, we, we, uh, we can be angry in regards to the, 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 the sins that are going on uh, outside of us as well. But, but the point is, is that it's real easy to look at the world, look at other people, and be really good at finding faults in others and getting all stirred up about that. And yet going really easy on yourself, turning a blind eye to yourself and to your own sin. Let's not spend so much time getting angry at the sins of others that we neglect the wretchedness that remains in our own hearts. Before you get stirred up about what's out there, make sure the first focus of your anger is what's in here. So be angry, put on righteous anger, but be very, very careful because there's a danger there are certain kinds of anger that are good and righteous and appropriate, but there are lots of perversions of anger that are anything but righteous. They are evil and wicked. And this is Paul's main focus in this section. Yes, he says be angry, but then he says do not sin. And that's my, my second point, that the Christian is to put off sinful anger. The Christian is to put off sinful anger. <clears throat> So, we really need this exhortation because if we're honest with ourselves, we'd admit that the majority of anger that most of us express is not righteous anger. And sinful, unrighteous anger can manifest itself in different ways, most subtly in the wake of righteous anger. What I mean is that it is possible to start out with an appropriate righteous anger towards evil, but guess what? If you're not careful, if you're not prayerfully vigilant and on guard against temptation, that anger can be warped and perverted, and you could easily slip into sinful self-righteousness, where you're just like, hmm, I just I can't believe they are like that. That's just ridiculous. I would never be that way. I can't believe those idiots would do that. Now, now what's happening there? You're angry and you're sinning. You're becoming self-righteous, which is sin. 
You're becoming arrogant, which is sin. Your heart is becoming cruel and callous, which is sin. And you're descending into bitterness and hatred towards the people whose actions are stirring up your anger. And that's sin. If the, if the injustice was against you, maybe you're beginning to desire revenge, to hurt them, to make them pay in some way. That's sin. There, there are some people, or to, uh, there are some people who deal with uh, their anger over evil in evil ways. So a moment ago, I was talking about abortion and abortion clinics, and people have been known to blow up abortion clinics to respond with violence. And in that, they have become the thing that they have hated. They, they become wicked, lawless murderers. Anytime you do anything in anger that violates any of God's laws, you are in a state of wicked, rebellious anger. You're in sin, and God will call you to account. I don't care how righteous you think your cause is. In your rage, you can become worse than the thing you are angry at. Charles Spurgeon said that the Christian man is not allowed to hate anyone. Thou hast no right, O Christian, Spurgeon says, to tolerate within thy bosom wrath, malice, anger, harshness, or uncharitableness towards any creature that God's hands have made. When thou hatest the man's sins, thou art not to hate him, but to love the sinner, even as Christ loved sinners and came to seek and save them. But that said, let's be honest with ourselves. So much of our anger, I dare say the majority of our anger, doesn't even start out as righteous anger that becomes sinful. For most of us, very often, our anger is sinful from the get-go. Now, how do we know this? How can we know this? How can we know our anger is a sinful anger? Well, think about this. Who is the standard of all good things? God is. And, and so what you want to do is compare your anger to God's, and you'll know right away if your anger is sinful or not. When God is righteously angry, first and foremost, at the heart of his anger is an anger that has to do with God being offended, mocked, belittled. It's an anger that is concerned about God's honor and God's kingdom. In John chapter 2, when, when Jesus in anger drove those money changers out of the temple, he said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And John says in that moment, his disciples saw that he was fulfilling scripture. Psalm 69, 9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was zealous for God and what honored God in that moment, that was his concern. Righteous anger always revolves around a priority for God and the things of God. And so let me ask you this. I want, to, I want you to think about the things that have made you angry recently. Maybe you got mad at your wife or your husband or your kids. Think about a, a disagreement or a fight you recently had and you, you got mad in that moment. Kids, kids watching this right now at home, I want you to think about this too. Maybe, maybe you recently got angry with your mom and dad about something. Now, let me ask you this. And I want you to be honest about it. How much of your anger this week had to do with the kingdom of God? How much of it revolved around God's priorities and God's purposes and God's agenda? When you get angry... 
How often are you thinking about God's kingdom in that moment? And how often are you thinking instead about your own kingdom? What are you saying, Deemer? What I'm saying is that way too much of my anger comes from the fact that someone has gotten in the way of my preferences, my priorities, and my agenda, and it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with someone or something not giving me what I want. It has to do with me not getting my way, as opposed to, as opposed to someone resisting God's way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James writes in James chapter 4. He writes this to the church. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, he's not talking about physical murder. Uh, He's talking about sinful He's talking about sinful anger, which Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount comes from a murderous heart. And how do we murder? We murder with harsh words. We murder by trying to intimidate or bully people into getting whatever we want. We murder by attacking them with the silent treatment, giving them the cold shoulder, being passive, aggressive. Uh, in our anger, we are willing to sin and punish other people in, the, in all of these ways to get the things that we want, willing to cause Uh, harm emotionally and relational harm, that's sinful anger. You need to come to grips with the fact that often you are angry not because someone has violated the rules of God's kingdom, but because they violated the rules of your kingdom. And when someone violates the rules of your kingdom, people are going to pay. And usually those who pay the most are those who are closest to you. You husbands who are watching, you wives who are watching, you've had a bad week or a bad year or a bad marriage because of stuff like this. You you really need to examine your angry hearts and repent of trying to build your own kingdom. You need to repent of being a little tyrant and a little despot, making your spouse pay for violating the standards and expectations of your kingdom. You need to crucify that desire and, and, and that desire to control and that desire to get your way. And, and instead, you need to seek first the kingdom of God. Same is true for parents who are, who are perpetually angry with their children. And this is a challenging one. Listen, if, if you are a parent, there are plenty of opportunities for you to have righteous anger because your kids are sinners. They sin a lot and they break the rules regularly. And I'm ashamed to admit that there have been times where I've been angry with my children first and foremost because I've been inconvenienced or because I've been embarrassed Uh, because I'm tired and I don't want to deal with this right now because I've had a long and stressful day and I just want to unwind and watch TV as opposed to dragging my selfish, lazy self off the couch, getting up and dealing with this. I'm angry because I'm thinking, don't they know I've had a long, hard day? Can't they have the sensitivity and respect for me to to, to not do this? Don't they know the trouble that this is making for me, 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 me? It's all about me. There's no God anywhere in that. And, And there's no love for my kids. It's love of self, love of my personal kingdom, which has been disrupted by somebody's disobedience. 
that sinful anger. I'm not angry because they sinned against God. I'm not concerned for their souls. I'm not concerned for their walk with God, how their disobedience is hurting them. I'm more concerned with how it's ruining my day and my agenda and my life. That's sin. It's, it's, it's also sin when you're angry about your preference. If you're, if you're angry and irritated that someone does something and it's not the way that you would do it, but, but it's not sin, it's just a difference of opinion or, or a different approach or, or a different way of thinking about something, then you aren't angry about what makes God angry. That should be a red flag. You should stop right there. When, when you get angry, you should ask yourself every time, is this about preference or is this about sin and the dishonoring of God? Is it about just me not getting my way? Or, or, or is it about they are resisting God's way? You know, there's a little saying. I don't know who originally said this, but I've seen and heard this a couple of different places, but it goes like this. He who will be angry and not sin, let him be angry at nothing but sin. Let me say that again, because some of you probably need to hear it. He who will be angry and not sin, let him be angry at nothing but sin. Here's another sign that your anger is not righteous. It's when you lose control, when you explode in rage. Remember, God's the standard, and God doesn't just blow his top and completely lose his mind. That, that's what the pagan gods of mythology did. That's what Zeus did. But, but that's not the, the, how the one true God operates. God is a God of self-control. And what's more, God is a God of extreme patience. Even in his righteous anger, he has a long fuse. Think about in the Old Testament, the Canaanites were committing idolatry and, and, and sexual immorality, and they were engaged in all kinds of detestable practices, and it stirred God to anger. And yet God also demonstrated extreme patience with them. How much patience? 400 years. 400 years of patience before God finally judge them 400 years for you and me if someone is acting up for four seconds we can't handle it and we lose it because unlike god we have a short fuse and a lot of times our fuse goes off not even about sin but about preference galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 paul writes now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. And then he says, fits of anger. Fits of anger. And then he goes on to list other sins. And it is interesting that in this whole long list of detestable, awful sins, right there in the middle of them all, it's fits of anger. And he says, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrighteous anger sends people to hell. So why in the world would we as the people of God want to engage in activities that send people to hell? Most of us are familiar with Jesus' words on anger in Matthew 5 where he equates unrighteous anger with a murderous spirit. And, and he says that that kind of anger makes one liable to judgment. But many of us don't read further on because Jesus presses us even further on this issue and, and, and really I think makes us uncomfortable because he goes on to say that whoever insults his brother, 
whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. He's talking about name calling. Have you ever called someone an insulting name? A moron? An idiot? Bet you some of you have, have done that on dri driving down uh, I-85. You ever mock someone? Jesus says, that's murder. That's murder. Why? Because God is looking at the heart and what he sees in that moment at the root of harsh, insulting words is a kind of anger and a bitter resentment that's at the root of murder. Uh, folks, even calling someone a demeaning name is deserving of hell. Because to have this kind of anger towards someone is a sin against a person made in God's image, which means that this is, a, this is an assault on God. Bible never excuses our anger like we do, friends. We make excuses all the time for our unrighteous anger. We blame our anger on other people. We blame our anger on circumstances. We blame our anger on the government. They're taking away our rights and our freedoms, and, and we're just and we're getting all worked up and bent out of shape over that thing in a rage out of control. Sometimes we blame our family background. Sometimes we even blame genetics. Well, I have red hair. And you know how us redheads are. Well, I come from an Irish background, and we just, you know, that, that's just how we are. It's, it's, and you just need, to, just need to deal with that. That's just who I am. Now, when you blame your anger and when you blame your irritability and, and the fact that you're easily provoked, when you, when, when you, uh, when you blame that uh, on, those, on those factors, you are going against the very point of the book of Ephesians. Well, I'm just, I, I just, I just kind of fly off the handle sometimes. That's who I am. Book of Ephesians says that's not who you are. You are somebody who is different now, and you need to live in accordance with your new identity. We blame all kinds of things for our anger. Bible turns around and instead puts the blame on our own angry hearts. And at the heart of anger, at the heart of that anger, is really an anger against God. You see, anger is always a matter of lordship. While righteous anger comes from a recognition of and a reverence for the lordship of God, unrighteous anger comes from our desire to be Lord ourselves. It comes from our desire to control the situation, and get our own way and exalt ourselves at the expense of others and exalt our kingdom above God's. There's no excuse for this kind of sin. Charles Spurgeon writes that, we must not make natural infirmity an excuse for sin, but we must fly to the cross and pray the Lord to crucify our tempers and renew us in gentleness and meekness after his own image. So we are to put off unrighteous anger. Um, and, and if we don't, we put ourselves and we put the church in grave danger. And that's why Paul also warns us to be on guard against the devil. That's my, my third point, uh, be on guard against the devil. Uh, be angry and do not sin. Uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then Paul says, and give no opportunity to the devil. When you're angry, you've got to realize 
that there is more going on than just your feelings. There, there's more going on than just you and the other person you're angry with. There's a, there's a third person at work in the situation and invisible power that is attracted to your anger, that loves your anger and seeks to destroy you with your anger. When sinful anger arises in your heart, I don't care what's going on, why, why, the particular thing that you're angry at or, or whatever, when sinful anger arises in your heart, the demonic powers are not far behind. When you hold on to bitterness towards a person, when you are resentful, even when you are just in a constant state of irritation towards somebody, Folks, you are speaking the devil's language. The Bible says the devil has been a murderer from the beginning, and he is eager to tempt you to prolong that anger so that more murder may come. The warfare between you and the person you're angry with is just the tip of the iceberg of a bigger, more intense spiritual warfare that's going on beneath the surface. Paul says, Give no opportunity for the devil. Now that word opportunity in the original language, that's a military term. Paul is saying, don't let the devil get a foothold. Don't let him establish a beachhead on which he can launch more attacks into your heart. Some of you struggle with this. Uh, something happens and you're angry and you don't properly deal with it and you let it go or you let it go on and, and you and you kind of just keep, keep thinking about it and turning it over in, in your head and that just goes on day after day, and what happens when we do that? It tends to get worse. We just nurse that anger to the point where we can even get a perverted pleasure out of it. But here's the irony. That lingering, festering anger is hurting you, and it will eventually destroy you. As Frederick uh, Buchner perfectly expressed it this way, he said, uh, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Uh, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I wonder if right now in your battle with unresolved anger are gnawing on your own soul, destroying yourself. But it's more than just yourself at stake. Let's remember the context of the book of Ephesians. He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to a church, to a Christian community. Paul is casting a vision for for what God's people, the church, are to look like in relationship with one another. A family of people who look different and act different than the world because of the power of the gospel. And it is through this people, this church, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.10, that the wisdom of God is made manifest to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, to Satan and all his demons. God shows his wisdom in saving and transforming a people that were once under the devil's captivity, that were once angry and hostile and murderous, and, and, and he rescues them from captivity. And so the church now 
is the emblem of God's wisdom. It's the emblem of God's triumph over the powers. And so, is it any wonder that the devil wants to gain a foothold in the church? Not just the church uh, in Ephesus in the first century, but at any gospel church, including Harbin's church. He wants to get a foothold in this church and from there launch further attacks against us, undermining us, ruining us, and ultimately destroying us. That's the devil's design. And one of the entry points that he seeks into our church is through your undealt with anger and my undealt with anger. The devil wreaks all kinds of havoc in churches this way, uh, distracting the church and ruining its witness to the world. And, and, and this can happen in all kinds of ways, shapes, and forms. As one preacher put it, Satan will work, will work to make minor disputes into major battles. He will strive to turn momentary disagreements into simmering resentments. He will labor to keep the memory of perceived slights alive in our hearts, carefully stored away, often referred to and brought to mind and added to with every new infraction. He wants you to save a file on your internal hard drive, marked with the names of your brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, into which you can place every slight and every imagined offense until eventually you can barely think of them without a flash of self-righteous indignation or a sneer of contempt, your brothers and sisters. That's the strategy of the evil one. What a field day Satan has among the people of God when we give place to ungodly anger. I wonder if any of that seems familiar. I wonder if you've seen any of those scenarios in any church that you've been a part of, maybe even in this church. Maybe you've even been guilty of being in and participating in such scenarios. How many churches have been split and brought down because of this sort of thing? You know, if it wasn't for, for, for the issue of unresolved anger and, and, and disputes and resentment in churches, there actually would not be as many churches as there are now. Because many churches are in existence through the result of a church split, through anger and hostility and disputes and unresolved conflict. Uh, how, how much more would, 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 would church hopping stop if, if, if we didn't have this issue to deal with because so many times people in a church get angry and there's unresolved conflict and dispute and people just kind of nurse these things and they, and they don't deal with them. And then the way that they deal with them is like, you know what, I'm just going to go to the church down the street. And, and, and they, just, they just run from it and they, and they don't deal with it. If you come to Harbin's church and there are unresolved issues that you have at your prior church, I'm going to send you back and make you deal with it before you consider joining another church. So many churches have been split and, and brought down because of this. Think about how many relationships have been, de been destroyed because of this. How many marriages have been ruined because anger provided the devil a beachhead, an entry point into the lives of God's people. Well, what's the, what's the solution? How do, we, how do we fight back? The way you deny the devil a foothold the way you strike a blow back against him, protecting yourself, protecting your family, and protecting your church is to be a reconciler. And that's my final point, my final observation on this text. Be a reconciler. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, that was an expression. Because it was at sundown that day laborers came in from the fields and accounts were settled. And Paul's saying, as opposed to letting your anger linger, keep short accounts with people. Deal with the issue ASAP. Don't, don't put off making things right with the other person. Crucify any sinful anger. Swallow your pride. And regardless of the reason for your anger, be eager to reconcile. Why? Because back up to verse 24 in Ephesians 4. He says, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. We're to be like God. And so what does an angry God do? Well, one, he doesn't sin. We already discussed that. But secondly, he takes initiative to reconcile and make peace. Do you realize that there is no one in the universe who has been more offended than God? You realize that there, there is no one who has been sinned against more than God? No one in the universe who has a right to be angry more than God? Whenever we sin, and we have sinned much, whenever we sin, we belittle God and his glory. We belittle him because when we sin, we trade God away for something that we think is superior to him. You see, sin is not just breaking in personal laws. I've talked about this before. It's not about breaking in personal cosmic laws. It is sin is the belittling of the worth of Jesus. Jesus, whose worth is infinite. And whenever we say no to him, we mock his value and his glory and his sufficiency for our lives. And we think we need something better than Jesus. God has a right to be angry about that. God has a right to be angry because despite God's kindness to us, despite his grace, despite the lavish goodness he has bestowed upon you and upon me, despite the, the breath that you just took being a gift from him, an undeserved gift from him, we spurned him, we betrayed him, and 2,000 years ago in our anger towards God, we murdered him and nailed him to a cross. It was our sin, it was my sin that put him there. The climax of man's hatred of God, a, a hatred and anger that has made a home in all of our hearts, crucified him. And yet, in the greatest story twist in the history of stories, in the wake of our treason against God, God, in response, pours out his full anger, like we would expect, but here's what we don't expect. He pours out his full anger, his burning wrath for our sin, not on us, but on his son. Why? Because the angry God is also the merciful God, the gracious God, and the loving God. But because he's also the just God who could not overlook our outstanding sin debt to God. So, so if God is to be righteous, if he's to be just, then our sin must be punished. And so God the Father sent God the Son into the world to become a man, to represent man. And as our substitute, this one man had transferred to him the sin of many sinners. And all of the sins were punished in him. Every last one of them. 
the only innocent man in the universe, the one who had more right to be angry than anybody else, instead receives the full anger of God the Father over those sins. So that anyone who would, by faith, turn from their sins and receive Jesus' payment for sins on the cross would be totally forgiven and would no longer have to fear the anger of God because accounts have been fully settled in Jesus. And therefore, the believer owes God nothing anymore because Jesus paid it all. Now, if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, God has brought you to this broadcast at this moment to tell you personally about this good news through me, an unworthy vessel. And even now, if you would but believe and hope in this gospel, you too will be saved. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that God, even though his anger against us was right and righteous, was nevertheless eager to make peace with us, to make reconciliation? We would have never come. Uh, so he took the initiative and made things right. And so now, Christian brother and Christian sister, in light of that, God turns to you and says, be an imitator of God. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right now, during this time of quarantine, I suppose there would be less opportunities for you to be angry with someone else in this church as, as there are less interactions, but it's, but it's not impossible. And so if there is something between you and someone else, don't use social distancing as an excuse to not make things right between you and that brother or sister in Christ. Pick up the phone, send a message, be like your Lord, be eager to reconcile. Now, if you're in quarantine with family members, I would say there are probably more opportunities for anger than normal. As being stuck together under one roof for a prolonged period of time can test anyone's patience. And so I wonder if right now there are some angry husbands watching this that need to repent and make things right with their wives. You have been awful this weekend or this week or longer, and you know it. I wonder if there are some angry wives that need to humble themselves and seek forgiveness from their husbands, or, or maybe you need to forgive. Same with parents and kids and siblings. Don't let the devil use your anger as an opportunity to get a foothold into your family and then to, if you're part of this church, get a, get a foothold in a Harbin's church. Instead, fight for your family. Fight for your church. Protect your family. Protect your church. Be eager to make things right. Be eager to make peace. Be like God and wear the divine wardrobe of right anger. Casting off the, the rags of unrighteous anger. Standing firm against the devil. And in all cases, being quick to forgive. Eager to reconcile. Treating others as God has treated you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. And I'm trusting you that as your word has gone forth, it has done its work in the hearts of those listening and that it will not return void, but that you'll be doing some special things in the hearts of, of people this afternoon and in the days ahead. Father, help us to be faithful image, images of you. Help us to have the right kind of anger and help us to put off the wrong kind of anger. And help us to be 
men and women and boys and girls of peace, of gentleness, of reconciliation. In short, help us to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen.